Well, good morning, Gateway. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be back with you this morning. Thank you for the warm welcome you gave us last Sunday, the warm welcome you gave us on Wednesday, the kindness you expressed to me, to Julia, to our kids. We are thankful for that. Thank you for the good questions you asked on Wednesday nights or submitted to be answered. You can tell a lot about a church by the questions they want answered in this process. You guys ask deep questions, meaty questions. That shows a lot about your character and your love for the Lord, and I'm thankful to have gotten to talk with you about those. It's been a joy to begin to get to know you over the last week, and I'm looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us in the future. Last week, we began by talking about Jesus. It was a good place to start if we're going to start somewhere getting to know each other. We talked about that Jesus alone satisfies our deepest longings, not when we work the works, but when instead we believe that he's the bread of life. I hope you had some time to think about that this past week. And even as you look at the works you're doing and the things you're doing, to have time to reflect on that. And are you doing those things to find satisfaction? Are you doing those things because you already are satisfied and you want others to find that satisfaction? I hope you'll think about that and keep thinking about those things. So that leads us to today. What to talk about this morning. There's one other thing that I think is important for us to discuss before you guys come to a vote later today about who your next pastor is. I think it's important to talk about the church. And not just the church, because there's lots of things we could talk about with the church. The scripture is so rich on teachings of how the church is governed and structured and the church's role in the community on mission. The church's role as community among believers. The church's role in evangelism. There's so much we could talk about. But I want to talk about today a prayer for the church. What is one thing, if there's anything that we're going to pray for the church, what do we need to be praying for the church? And I want us to focus on that this morning. So before we begin, I want to ask you a few questions Question just for your reflection to kind of help kind of set the stage, so to speak, to what we'll see from Scripture this morning. And the first question for you is this, is how often do you pray for Gateway? How often do you pray for Gateway? I'm not talking about the building. You all know that the church is not the building. The building is a place that the church comes when the church gathers. How often do you pray for the body, for one another, for the fellow saints, the fellow brothers and sisters here that make up Gateway? How often do you pray for one another? When do you pray for Gateway? I'm really thankful talking to the pastoral search committee, the elders and the deacons. What I'm hearing from you guys is in this season of searching for the Lord's will, for who the next pastor should be, it's driven you to your knees and you've been growing in prayer. And I'm incredibly thankful to hear how God has been working in your midst in that way. But when do you pray? Do you find that you pray more when your things are just going smoothly and well? Do you find yourself praying more when there's a mountain to climb, when there is some uncertainty or some unknown or some difficulty you're going through? When, when do you pray the most for the body here? And last question. Gateway is obviously a church that's well-rooted in the gospel, well-established in the gospel. Does the fact that Gateway is established in the gospel lead you to pray more? Or does it lead you to perhaps be a little more passive in your prayers because there's such a history here of gospel faithfulness? When do you pray for the body here? When do you pray for the church? I want us to see today one of Paul's prayers for a church. Because Paul had a specific prayer for obviously lots of churches. But one in particular was a church that many ways like Gateway was a church well-rooted, well-established in the gospel. And I believe his prayer for the church has much to teach us about not only how we view the church, but how we're to pray for one another as the body of Christ. And so before we get to the text, I want to give you two things I want you to listen for as we look at the text this morning, okay? The first thing I want you to listen for as we read the text this morning is, first of all, what has God already done for the church? 
What has God already done for the church? Because my tendency, again, we're in a workspace culture. A lot of us can find our identity in the things that we do if we're not careful. And I can look at a text like we're going to look at this morning and start seeing a list of things I need to do, 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 do. But that's not what this text is about. This morning's text is more about a list of things that have been done, that God has already done for the church, for which we're thankful. So if you're listening, what, what has God already done for the church here in the text we're going to look at today, but for the church a gateway also? But then second of all, what do we still need to ask God to be doing? So what has God already done? And what do we still need to ask God to be doing for the church? So would you turn in your copy of God's Word or find in your Bible app Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. While you're turning there, just some quick background to the book so we have the context. This book was written by the Apostle Paul. He had Timothy at his, at his side. And Timothy was his amanuensis. He was the one who was the, the secretary, the scribe who was writing down what Paul was saying. And Paul, with Timothy at his side, is writing to the church in the city of Colossae. Colossae was once a great city. It was at the base of a mountain pass, and there was a river that flowed through and had lush pastures and a lot of sheep. There, so they had a thriving garment industry. It was a well-known city. But this great city's influence has waned. Other cities kind of overshadowed it, and now this once great city is a small city. But it's a small city with a vibrant, thriving church in their midst. The church that Paul's writing to, the church in the city of Colossae, was not started by Paul. In fact, Paul had never met them. He's writing to a people he's never met, but a people that he loves. It started by a guy, we'll see in our text today, a guy by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras traveled to Ephesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19 if you want to see it sometime. But Paul had a ministry in Ephesus. We believe that Epaphras had traveled there, heard the gospel from Paul, and took the gospel as a young believer back to his city, to the city of Colossae, started a church. So Epaphras was like the church planner, the missionary, the evangelist who established a church in this city. The letter Paul's writing now to this church that Epaphras established was it's happening about 10 years later. 10 years into having a vibrant, gospel-focused church in the city. Paul never met them, but he's writing to them because he loves them. And why is he writing to them here? The context? Well, he's concerned about them. Not because they had they abandoned the gospel. They were well-established in the gospel, but there was some type of outside influence that he was concerned about. We don't know exactly what it was. There's lots of speculation, but... The point is, there was some type of influence he was concerned about. And so, to counter that, he doesn't focus on what the false teaching was or the influence was. He just focuses them on Christ. Because the best thing to do to counter false teaching, to counter challenges we have, is to look to Christ. And so, Paul's going to, in the book of Colossians, hold up the centrality of Christ over all things. He's going to hold up Christ as the sovereign Lord over all creation. He's going to point people back to who Christ is. And so, Colossians is one of the most Christ-centered books you can find. In all of Scripture. So what better context for understanding what the church is to be? But one last thing before we read the text. The context is also a pretty sobering reminder for us. Because this church in the town of Colossae that was well established in the gospel had a very real enemy who was attacking it. A very real enemy, Satan himself, who's trying to knock this church off her gospel foundation. And that enemy who's trying to destroy the church at Colossae, which precipitates Paul needing to write to them, is the very same enemy who hates Gateway. And so I'm not gateway off her gospel foundation as well. And so though the context may be different, though the attacks may be different, there's still an enemy who hates God's church and still is working to destroy the church. And therefore, the church needs prayer. And so we're going to see that in our text today, because I believe what Paul prays for them is the very thing that we need corporately as well. So would you, in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read from verses 1 through 14. Can I ask you once again to stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Friends, what a... Awesome privilege we have to be holding the Word of God 
in our hands, the very words of life that God has given to us. I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. So Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. God, we are thankful that you are not a God who's hidden yourself. God, you've clearly revealed to us who you are in the pages of the Bible, and we are thankful for that. God, thank you for the privilege we have this morning to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to lift high the name of Jesus. God, I pray today that as your word goes forth, it would transform me, it would transform all of us, Lord, that we might be more in love with you when we leave this place than when we came in this morning. So change us, we ask, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So like last week, I've got one main idea I want you to take away from the sermon. But like I told you last week, I'm not going to tell you the one idea and we're going to pack them and go home to lunch yet, okay? We're going to unpack this idea. I want you to see how this, this idea unfolds throughout the, the, throughout the pages of this passage and the verses of this passage. But here is our key idea that I want you to see from this text this morning. That a church well established in the gospel still needs to pray daily for God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. A church well established in the gospel still needs to pray daily for God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. And we're going to unpack that, and I hope it will make more sense by the time we get done in a few minutes. But that's the main idea I want you to see this morning. We're going to start by seeing how this church is established in the gospel. So look back at Paul's greeting to them in verses 1 and 2, and look at how Paul introduces the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Just parenthetically at the beginning here, this is a normal pattern for a letter in the first century. Tell them who you are, address the readers, and then give them some blessing or greeting here, grace and peace. And that's what Paul's doing. But it is noteworthy here that Paul is writing as an apostle by the will of God. He's writing with apostolic authority. He's writing on the authority of God to tell us what we need to know about the church and what the people in Colossae needed to know. But notice this, the church of Colossae is a church rooted in the gospel. Look at how he describes them. Verse 2. What words does he use to describe the believers? Saints. And what else? Saints and faithful brothers. And depending on your translation, the word saints may say holy people. There's one in the same idea there. Saints or holy people. So that's the first word he uses. Saints or holy people. Friends, when this term is used in the New Testament, this is not speaking of our practical righteousness. This is speaking of the righteousness that we've received from Christ. 
These are people, this is not talking about their morality. This is talking about who they are in Christ. And when Christ looks on them, when God the Father looks on them, he sees the righteousness of Christ. These are people who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. These are people who are redeemed. And when God sees them, he sees them holy because they have received Christ's righteousness. This is their positional standing. So they're saints. But they're also, secondly, faithful brothers. Well, now here's the practical living out of what they are. They're faithful. They're consistent in their walk with the Lord. They're brothers. They're they're fellow believers. And friends, that is a great description for the church. People who understand that they are righteous in God's sight because of what Christ has done and now live it out practically what Christ has pronounced them to be. It's positionally who they are in Christ and practically they are living it out. Friends, that is a church well established in the gospel. But Paul's going to further elaborate to show us how well established in the gospel they are. And he's going to start with verse 3. And verses 3 through 8 in the Greek is like really one big, long, complex sentence. Thankfully, the English simplifies it a little bit for us. But it's one long sentence here for us, starting in verse 3. And the key idea of verse 3 is we always thank God when we pray. This is a thanksgiving. Paul is going to show thanks to God for what's been done in the church in Colossae. And his thanksgiving reveals to us how they are established in the gospel. So look at verses 3, 4, and 5 here to see how they are established in the gospel. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's these three evidences, faith, hope, and love. Sound familiar? This is what Paul uses in several other places in Scripture, including in 1 Corinthians 13. This is, he's showing the evidences that they are established in the gospel. First, their faith, their belief in Christ, their trust in him, their response to what God has already done for them. Secondly, though, their love. And this is where our English language does not do justice to this text. Greek is a little bit more specific than English on this one. In English, we have one word for love. I love God. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my friends. I love dogs. I love chocolate. And I love roller coasters. <laughs> that one word doesn't seem adequate to convey the differences of meaning of all that, but that's not where we're stuck with in our English language. The Greek is a lot more specific, and there's a lot of different words of love to convey different types of love. And here, the love for the saints that Paul's holding up is the Greek word agape. This is the agape love, the type of love that normally is used to describe the love of God for his people. And here Paul is saying, what I see in you, church, is an agape love, that you're agape loving one another the same way the Father loves you. It's an evidence that are rooted in the gospel. They're showing the same type of love to one another that God has shown to them. They have received his love, and now they're sharing it together. So they have faith, they have love, and they also have hope. But Paul's going to do something a little bit different here than his other writings. It simply just speaks of faith, hope, and love. But here he's going to show hope as being the foundation for their faith and the foundation for their love. Again, look back at verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, and the notes next were because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the foundation, the only reason they're able to love one another with a Christ-like agape love, the only reason they're able to have faith in God is because they have hope. And this is not just a hope you muster up to try to feel better. This is a hope that is laid up for them in heaven. This is the hope in the gospel. This is the hope of Christ in this. And notice, and this is so important, the hope has already been laid up for them. Paul's not asking them to muster up some feeling of hope to get through a tough day. They already have hope, and it is secured for them in heaven already because Christ is in heaven, because Christ is there, and they've received the gospel. They have hope. This is dependency, not self-help. 
And so I can make a little conclusion from this and draw a little extrapolation from it. If hope is a gift from God they've received because it has been laid up for them in heaven, and they're not working for it like we talked about last week, it's been laid up for them in heaven. If that hope has been given to them, therefore the faith and the love that flow out of that are also gifts from God that they have received. Again, this is not a list of things to do. This is the things that have been done for them, and it's the outer working of that. Well, that leads us to the question, the fundamental question, how do we receive this? How, does, how can a church be established in the gospel and have hope that's in heaven that leads to faith and to love? And Paul shows us here in the text in verses 5 through 8. And the answer before we read it is they receive this gift of hope and faith and love by simply believing in the gospel. So look back at verses 5 through 8. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, of this what? Of this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth. The gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The answer of how did they receive this gift of hope? How are they established in the gospel? They just believed it. It sounds simple, but they just believed it. And notice the gospel is described as the word of the truth. The gospel is not a way to find hope. It's not one of many ways. It is the only hope that we have. It's the only hope of being reconciled to God. It's the only hope for those of us, all of us, who are guilty sinners, who have offended God, who stand condemned by him to be reconciled, made right because of what Christ has done. There is no hope apart from the gospel and believing in Christ. And this is so significant because this church was being attacked with some false teaching, something outside pressing against the church. And Paul didn't give them something new. He reminded them of the gospel. Friends, we don't need new teachings. We need the gospel, just like the church at Colossae did. And thankfully, in God's kindness, they had received it. Look at verse, back at verse 6. It has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and growing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The image here is of the gospel growing, of bearing fruit, it's the idea of it being productive, that the gospel is certainly going to accomplish what God sent it to do. It's having its intended effect. Friends, the word of God cannot fail. But before we move on, I just want to remind us of one more thing that's so important here, because I think I've missed this in the past. Paul is not asking God to do any of these things. He's thanking God for already doing them. Paul is not praying to God, asking God to enlarge their faith. Paul is not praying, asking God to increase their love for one another. They already have faith and they already have agape love. Why? Because they have hope. But, God does, but Paul doesn't, doesn't pray and ask God to give them more hope. He doesn't need to because they already have hope. It's already secured through Christ for them when they received the gospel. They have all the hope they already need. But Paul doesn't even ask then for them to get the gospel because God's already sent them the gospel. He sent it through Epaphras, who verse 7 describes as a beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister. Some translators say a faithful witness, and we could do a whole sermon on what it means to be a faithful witness like Epaphras. We'll do that maybe another day. If you want to read on that, just go to 2 Corinthians 5 and let your heart be filled with the thought of how God chooses to use us as his ambassadors. But again, message for another day on that. So Paul is not asking God to do these things. He's simply thanking God that these things have been done, that this church is established in the gospel. It's a church that has love, that has faith, that has hope, because they've received it in the gospel. And so in these first eight verses, Paul has not asked for one thing yet. Paul simply thanked God 
for what God's done. Which if I could just again kind of say parenthetically, that's really the same thing as praising God. If we're thanking God, we're praising God. Because if we're thanking God, we're acknowledging that He is the provider. If we're thanking Him, we're affirming His attributes, His character. And so what Paul has done in these first eight verses is really praise God, worship God, thank God for what He's done in the church, and encourage these believers with how He's seen God working. And then, and only then, in verse 9, does He turn it to what we typically think of when we pray, and that's the asking. And so verse 9 really becomes, I believe, one of the key verses of the passage. If the church needs to know anything for how the church is to pray, verse 9 starts to show us. And look at how verse 9 begins. And so. Okay, and so what? And so because of the thankfulness for them being established in the gospel, Paul now prays it. And don't miss this. Paul is praying not because the church is in trouble. He's praying because they're established in the gospel. And that is driving him to his prayers. I feel like in my own life sometimes I pray more only when I'm in trouble. But here Paul's praying for a church that's strong. Because he loves them. Because he wants to see them keep going strong. And so he's going to pray. And he uses two words to describe his prayer. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking. He's the word for prayer and asking here. To pray is a general word. It conveys all aspects of prayer. What we typically would think of. Praise. Thanksgiving. Confession. Asking. It's, it's the totality of all that. But the second word he uses here, the word for asking this is the word for what we typically would call intercession or interceding, asking God. And what is that? Intercession is expressing particular requests to God to intervene on behalf of someone else. Intercession is, is asking God for very specific requests for God to intervene in the lives of other people. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's asking God to intervene into the lives of the Colossian church here. And notice how fervently he asked, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He doesn't say I prayed once a week in a prayer meeting for you. He didn't say I prayed occasionally for you. I put on a post-it note so I remember when I get up first thing in the morning. He says I prayed without ceasing. Whatever the church in Colossae needed, this church that was so established, whatever it needed was of such importance to Paul that he prayed without ceasing for them. For this one request. And not for anything else we've just seen. He's just thanking God for all those other things. But there's one thing he prays for because they need it so much. He prays for it without ceasing. And look back at verse 9. Let's see what he prays for the church. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They need, more than anything else as a class of church, they need to be filled Friends, in the Greek, that is passive. They cannot provide this for themselves. They need God to fill them. They can't muster it up. They can't do it themselves. This is God's work, and all they can do is ask God for it. Friends, no book study and discipleship can fill us. No church growth strategy can fill us. No conference we can go to can fill us. Nothing we can do can fill us. Only God and his kindness can fill us with what we need. And it comes in response to asking for him to fill us. But notice what specifically they need to be filled with. They're to be filled with the knowledge, not just general knowledge, but the knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will. That's what this church in Colossae needs is the knowledge of God's will. This is not just intellectual knowledge, so that's included with that. This word carries the meaning of experiential knowledge also. This is knowing about God and knowing God. There's a difference in me knowing facts about my wife and knowing my wife. This is, there's a difference in knowing facts about God and knowing God 
personally. And this idea of being filled with the knowledge of his will is both the knowledge about God and the experience of knowing God. And so Paul is praying for God to reveal himself and his will to these people because they need to know it and they need to experience it. How does God give us these things that they need? And the answer is in the very next phrase of the text in verse 9. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How does the church at Colossae receive from God this being filled with the knowledge of his will? They get it in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That basically means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're reading the NIV, it actually translates a little bit different. It changes the text a little bit to try to convey that. And NIV will actually say, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. I think the NIV gets it right on that. There's this idea that we receive it through the Holy Spirit. That basically Paul is asking for the church at Colossae, for the people to be filled daily with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can open our minds to understand the truth of God's Word. Because he, the Holy Spirit, is the only one who can open our hearts to receive it and believe it. And isn't that what Jesus told us in John 16, that the Holy Spirit would come and would guide us into all truth? That's what Paul's praying for. So even if the church is established in the gospel, it desperately, desperately still needs daily to be seeking for God to fill it with the knowledge of his will. For daily God to be filling the people with his Holy Spirit. Why? Why is that so urgent for Paul to pray without ceasing for that? And Paul shows us again his flow of thought. Look at the beginning of verse 10. So as, so that. So you see his flow of thought so far in, in his argument here in Colossians 1 that's masterfully written here. So he's going to talk about verses 1 through 8. Here's what I'm thankful for. God has done all these things for you already as a church. And so because he's done that, now I'm going to ask God to do one thing for you. And the one thing I'm going to ask God to do for you is to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Why? So that now he's going to tell us why we so desperately need this one prayer in the church. So look at verse 10. So as, here's the reason, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul prays this with such fervency for the church so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the word. What does it mean to walk? This is not talking about going to the gym or to the mall for your morning walk. Walk is a metaphor for our Christian life, how we live. And in fact, it's reminiscent if you go all the way back to Genesis 17, one of the very first commands God ever gives to Abram in Genesis 17 is, walk with me and be blameless before me. This idea of following after God and obeying him in all of these things. It's a metaphor for how we live. And how do we walk? He tells us, he's praying this for church so they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. Well, what does that mean? Why does it mean to be pleasing to him? Well, in the Greek here, there's four phrases that come after it that kind of help us see what it means to be pleasing to the Lord. But before we talk about those four phrases, again, let me remind you, these are not four phrases of things for us to be doing. And Guard our minds from a workspace list here. These are the fruit, the results, the evidence of a church where God has answered this prayer. And this is not a list of us taking this list. Okay, I'm going to start doing these four things. Right? These are the fruit or the results of God answering our prayer to fill us with the knowledge of his will, filling us with his Holy Spirit. This is the fruit, the results of a church established in the gospel that asks God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. And there's four, and it starts in verse 10. So let's look back at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord... Fully pleasing to him. Here's number one, bearing fruit and every good work. So the first is evidence, you will, in the life of the church that God is, is answering this prayer and moving is they're bearing fruit and every good work. When I hear this, my mind normally goes to evangelism. Because we've heard talking about bearing fruit a lot in evangelistic context. And that's true. That's part of it. That is, that is an application of it. But this is every good work. This is the totality of our Christian life, not just evangelism. This is bearing fruit in all 
things. What does that mean? I think we understand in terms of Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is that we manifest Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things that come as a result of the Holy Spirit having control of our lives. And what does that look like practically? Well, if God's answering this prayer in our lives and we're seeking this thing in our lives, that means when one of our young kids... So we're running out the door to church and we're already late and spills the milk and is not obeying and is pushing all of our buttons. Do we respond with anger? Do we respond with the fruit of the Spirit? With patience and kindness and gentleness. This means when we're going down the interstate or going down Eastern Boulevard and that person cuts you off and slows down. It's the fruit of the Spirit in our life. It's, it's, again, I'm not supposed to do these works, but it's just the overflow of a life that is surrendered to the Lord that has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and work in our lives. This is what enables us to be kind to that stranger that we've never met, to love someone who would be so different from us. That is the idea of bearing fruit in every good work. Again, that's not a work for us to do. That is the result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the first one. The second one is also in verse 10, that last phrase, in increasing in the knowledge of God. So two evidences that God's answering this prayer in the church, they're bearing fruit, but they're also increasing in the knowledge of God according to the end of verse 10. Again, like I mentioned about knowledge, this is both intellectual and experiential. What does that mean, that we're increasing the knowledge of God? That means in the life of the church, there's a growing awareness of who God is. It means we study the characteristics of God, His attributes, His nature, how He works in the world. We study the Word of God, and yes, we study theology. That's part of knowing God. But it's not just the knowledge of that. It's the experience of that as well. That means there's a hunger, an excitement, a desire to get closer to the Lord. You know, when Julie and I do pre-marriage counseling together, it's fun. I love seeing a young couple who's getting married in six months sitting on our sofa and the excitement in their eyes, the excitement in their voice about the wedding that's to come. How much more so, friends, should our excitement be about being in relationship with our Creator who, is re- who made us, who's rescued us, who's redeemed us, and put us back into a restored relationship with Him? How much more excited should we be about that? That's part of this increasing in the knowledge of God. Is there a, there's a growing sense of excitement about knowing God in the life of the church. So the evidence of God answering this prayer in the church, there's fruit. The people are filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and there's fruit in their lives. There's an increase of the knowledge of God intellectually and experientially. But third, there's an ability to persevere. An ability to persevere. Look at verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Well, depending on your translation, some like the ESV put a sentence break here, and I don't think that sentence break is very helpful because it looks like almost a new idea, but it's really a continuation of, the, of this kind of big complex thought that Paul is writing here. And so really you could almost render it better after saying increasing in the knowledge of God and also being strengthened. It's this passive idea of something that has to be done for them. The believers are experiencing God's power, not their own, but not just power to do whatever they want. It's power for a very specific purpose for which they need. And the two words there of what they need this power for, endurance and patience. Endurance is staying strong in difficult circumstances. When life is hard, it's staying strong in it. And there's lots of ways to understand patience, but patience here conveys the idea of remaining calm in those difficult days. So remaining strong and remaining calm in the midst of the difficulty. Friends, we need that. I mentioned on Wednesday night, James 1. It's the promise I've never seen anyone frame and hang in their bathroom or above their sofa. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when, not if, when you face trials, and not a few, but trials of many kinds. The promise of James 1 is we will face trials, and we'll face trials of many kinds. We lived in a cursed and fallen world, and life can be tough. 
And we need God's power, not our own, to persevere, to endure, to have patience. When we get a medical diagnosis that strikes fear in our heart, when we have the loss of a loved one like some of you have had in the last week, when we have someone mock us for our faith, when someone we love and care about turns their back on us and stabs us in the back, are we to be marked as people who persevere, who have endurance and patience with joy in those things? Again, we can't muster that up. We can't choose that, friends. That is another evidence outworking of God answering this prayer to fill us with the knowledge of his will. And this is part of what results from that. And so three of the ones we've seen so far, if God's answering this prayer in the life of the church body, we see fruit. We see increasing knowledge and experience of God. We see perseverance. And there is one more for us, and that's in verses 12 through 14. Look there, and it's being thankful. Being thankful. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here Paul is is praying the very thing that he was thankful for at the beginning. He's thankful they're established in the gospel. Now he's thanking them for the gospel. He's thanking God for the gospel in this. And he's kind of bringing us all around full circle here. A mark of a church that is established in the gospel is a church that is thankful for being established in the gospel right here. And there's several descriptions of the gospel in this text. And, you know, there's words we use in our church life a lot that I think sometimes we lose the force of their meaning. And gospel is one of those. Talk about being gospel-centered and gospel-driven and gospel-purposed and all these different words we use. He reminds us of what the gospel entails, some aspects of it here. Verse 12, talking about giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. This is the idea of God's initiative, that only God can declare a sinful person righteous. In his sight, the God has qualified us for this, but then it's not just he's qualified us. Look what we did in verse 13, the beginning. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is the idea of he's rescued us. The word we use the most in our vocabulary is he saved us. We were, we were enslaved to the enemy and to our sin, and God has delivered us. He's rescued us from that. But he didn't stop there. The last part of verse 13, he has and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has given us mercy and grace. He's made us part of his kingdom. That's what First Peter 2 describes, that once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Friends, this is the gospel, and it's all possible because of what Christ did. We're now part of the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ has paid the price to secure our freedom. The debt has been paid. God's justice has been satisfied. Perhaps no one has ever described it in ways that I can understand better than what John Piper once said when he said, the wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. The the, the wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Oh, there's so much. That's going to be a whole sermon in and of itself. Thank you, John Piper, for that summary statement. But that, the gospel and what Christ has done for us in that. But there's a glimpse of that right here, that in whom we have redemption, the price has been paid, that God has rescued us and he has forgiven us of all of our sins. So in light of those four things that are the outflow, again, these aren't works we do, these are the outflow of a life where God is answering his prayer of filling us with the knowledge of his will. We ask for it. Let's go back to, our, to the more fundamental question of what should God's church look like? A New Testament church should be characterized by bearing fruit, what we just saw, being filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There should be, in the midst of a New Testament church, the evidence 
of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not only corporately and individually, both. So a New Testament church should look like that. There should be a growing knowledge of God. A New Testament church should be marveling at the mysteries of God. Friends, even when we've been in heaven for a hundred trillion years, we're still going to be discovering new things about God. God is so big, now we get to heaven and yawn like, oh, I'm glad I figured out who God is. He's so big, we cannot cease to discover new things about Him. We need to be, with the word open in front of us, discovering more of His attributes of who He is, and then experiencing Him, walking with Him. A New Testament church should be marked with perseverance with joy. In a way that the world doesn't understand, when life is tough and we have joy in our face and the loss of a loved one, joy in our face and a difficult medical diagnosis, joy in our face and some opposition, the world doesn't understand because they don't have the hope that secured all this for us. And the New Testament church should be marked by thankfulness for the, for the very gospel that's the foundation of all of those things. But again, those are not a list of four things for us to be striving to do. Those are the fruit, the result, the outflowing of God filling us with the knowledge of his will. It's the fruit of believers together as a local body of Christ, as a local expression of a local church, fervently seeking to be filled with the knowledge of his will. It's a church that's filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. A church that realizes they cannot manufacture God's presence. A church that realizes we cannot program holiness, we cannot program joy, we can't program anything. It is a gift from God to his church, and all we have to do is ask for him to fill us in this. It's believers who realize they cannot gain wisdom on their own, that it all must come from God. And so it is a church that, where there's believers like Paul who pray regularly for one another that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will so as to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. So back to my first questions. Friends, when do you pray for Gateway? When do you pray this type of prayer that Paul has to the church of Colossae for one another? And then for what do you pray for one another? And so today I want to encourage you, exhort you, plead with you as I plead with myself and exhort myself and encourage myself in this to not lose sight of the gospel. To not lose sight of what God has called you to pray for and seek for for one another. Gateway, you have a rich history of running the race well. You have a great heritage of being rooted in and established in the gospel. Don't lose sight of that. Let it be something that drives you to thankfulness. And let it be something that doesn't drive you to passivity because we've got the gospel. We're thankful God is moving in our midst. Don't let it drive you to passivity. But like Paul, when he finds in the church root in the gospel, rather he prays more fervently for that church now. Not because they're in trouble, but because they're established in the gospel. And they need the wisdom of God. They need the fullness of God in their midst and in their life. And so, Gateway, can I plead with you to stay on your knees for one another. That, you, that all of you together as the body of Christ might be filled with the knowledge of God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So as our praise team comes up now, I want to encourage you to just take a moment where you're seated. Would you pray that? Not only for yourself, but for the church. Would you take a minute as they're coming, just where you are, ask God to fill you afresh with the knowledge of his will. Look at the person sitting next to you and just pray, God, would you fill this brother, this sister with the knowledge of your will? Look for the people around you. Start praying by name that God might fill the people around you with the knowledge of his will. Would you pray that for the whole body? That God might grant this prayer that Gateway Baptist Church is a church that continues to be established in the gospel. But that today and every day is a church that is known because they're people who realize they're dependent upon the Lord. And they can't manufacture these things on their own. But rather need God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. Would you pray that for the people around you and then our praise team is going to lead us?